Good morning. My name, well done. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here, and I have 20 minutes, so let's get started. I, uh, this morning, I uh, was sitting on my couch going over my notes uh, for this. My son, seven years old, came walking down the stairs, came, sat on the couch next to me. He, he uh, brought a book, uh, said, Daddy, look, look at the book I brought. It was a superhero Avengers book. I didn't, I didn't grow up with like superhero stuff, so I didn't know what he was talking about. And, um, and he said, Daddy, uh, hey, this, this book, it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it, it's a chapter book. Do you know what that means? And I said, no, son, I'm working. Um, I'm just kidding. I didn't, I didn't say that. Uh, he, he said, it's a chapter book, Daddy. You know what that means? And I said, no. And I, I expected some kind of like existential. That means I'm reading at 3.6 grade levels above where I am. And it's not what, he, not what he said. He said, that means the big green Hulk, he's real. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, oh, okay. Um, but it sparked a thought. Is that, is that how we treat the resurrection? Part of the Bible's table of contents, therefore it's real. Because one of the, one of the things that um, I most often hear, the most common objections to believing to Christianity is uh, that I just don't have enough evidence. I just don't have enough evidence to be sure. Uh, or something like this, that I, I just I feel like to believe I have to check my mind at the door. And I... If I'm honest, I, I actually think that's a pretty fair response. Like, I think it's a, a pretty fair engagement. So, uh, because the, the Bible itself would say that, that believing is not meant to simply be just a matter of subjective feeling. Like I, I just believe, I feel like the resurrection happened. That 1 Corinthians 15, part of the New Testament, says there's objective realities to what we believe. And that if the resurrection didn't happen, all that we're doing is an utter waste of time. The way that uh, 1 Corinthians 15 describes it, describes the resurrection like the first domino in a string of dominoes, right? You push the first one down, the rest go. So here's what I want to do today. I want to, I want to follow Mark, our, our passage that just got read. And I want to ask, should the resurrection be that first domino that we push down? And if we do, where does it take us? Sound good? Doesn't matter. Let's go. Verse 1, when the Sabbath, that was the last day of the week, was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salam, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Okay, so here's what's just happened. Jesus has been arrested, crucified, died, buried in a tomb. These three women buy spices. And they come, and they, uh, they want to anoint Jesus. And they show up, and they're worried about uh, how are we going to get the stone, this massive stone off the tomb. And they show up, and the stone is gone. But here's, the, here's my question. Why... Why women? Why women? In fact, if we went back a few verses in a chapter 15, three times you're going to see these same women repeated. I mean, was, was Mark simply afraid that Christians wouldn't be able to remember names? No. There's at least two things happening here. First, 
one of the ways in which you knew the difference in historic data, historic reliable um, accounts and a legend was that you would have never, never put names of people still alive in a legend. For, for obvious reasons, right? We have a, a DA who's, I think, in this room somewhere. Why, why would you not put names of living people in a legend? Because they can be cross-examined. You would never, if you were making up a story in this day, a legend, just kind of a fairy tale that you want to see get spread, you would never put the names of living people who could be cross-examined in your uh, account. The second, and I think uh, this one's uh, even a bit more direct, is you, you would have never in the first century, if you're trying to write an account of something that happened and you want people to believe that it happened, you would have never put women in the story. Never. Because in this day, women were seen as unstable. They were seen as unreliable, too emotional. Couldn't be, couldn't be counted on. You would never in the first century, if you were trying to write an account of something that you wanted to be passed on and believed, you would have never had leading characters in your story be three women. Never. See, the, the gospel of Mark, it, it's written to uh, Gentile Christians. So people that were more non-religious that became Christians who had Gentile or non-religious friends who, who likely would not have believed in the resurrection. And here's what, what, what I just love and find so intriguing about the gospel of Mark is that if you were a first century Gentile, if you're a Gentile, first century, uh, non-religious, and you read these first four verses in Mark's um, account of the resurrection, you would have found data in here that you had to deal with. You, you would have found this to be credible, compelling even. You'd have had to interact with it. He starts out with data that the Gentile or non-religious first century would have found compelling. But look where he goes now. In entering the tomb, this is verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed, obviously. And he said to them, do not be alarmed, of course. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So they show up, the stone is rolled away, they walk into the tomb, and off to the right is a young man dressed in a white robe. And we know from the other Gospels that this was an angel. That this was um, an angel dressed in white who looks like a young man. Now, if you were Jewish, religious, you understood, you had some knowledge of the Old Testament. You grew up in, you know, like first century Awanas or something. You don't, know, you don't know three things. One, in the Old Testament, angels often took the form of people. Two, divine speech often came through angels. Uh, and three, three, white was this heavenly transcendent color. You'd have picked up that this was an angel delivering divine speech. You'd have caught on that he is risen, is a divine declaration. And see, where, where, where he goes now is that if you were Jewish, religious, you, you, you didn't necessarily believe in a resurrection. Just because you were Jewish, religious, didn't mean you believed in a resurrection. In fact, a lot of Jews didn't. 
But what you'd have seen in this is you'd have picked up on something. You'd have picked up on this account of how it happened in Mark is, uh, has some continuity with the rest of the Bible and how you probably would have expected it to happen. So even if you were a religious Jew who just said, nah, I don't really, uh, I don't believe in the resurrection, when you read this, you'd have gone, all right, if there was going to be a resurrection, this does fit within how I would have expected it to happen, or at least how I would expect it to be communicated. So what I, what I love about the Bible so much, um, I, was, I was 22 when I became a Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. And um, one of the things I love is the Bible isn't simply written to inform. It's also written to persuade. It's also written to be compelling, to persuade you that Jesus really is the Christ. He really is the long-awaited Savior, and if you were a first-century religious Jew or you were a first-century non-religious Gentile, when you open up and you read these first six verses of Mark and his account of the resurrection, you're going to find either one of you something compelling to make you consider maybe it did happen. Maybe it is that domino that ought to push over. And now where Mark goes is if you do, if you follow Corinthians' lead, push the domino over, where does it take us? Let's keep going. Verse seven. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you. Now, let's, let's stop right there. Um, Peter, is he one of the disciples? Yes, no. Yeah. So why and disciples and Peter? Wouldn't disciples have been sufficient? Right, wouldn't it have just been sufficient to say, hey, tell the disciples, which would have included Peter, uh, I'm going to go before them. Well, do, do you know the last time that Peter was mentioned in the Gospel of Mark? Do you know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Deny Jesus. Never mind. You can tell me what happened. I don't have to tell you what happened. <laughs> three, three times Jesus has been arrested and a group of people say to Peter, hey, aren't you with him? Aren't, aren't you one of his? You're a follower of Jesus from Nazareth, aren't you? You're with this guy three times. No, I don't know that man. Three times, Peter, I, I, don't, I don't know him. Now, don't let the Bible be an abstract legal document that you read. It's not an insurance form to fill out. Put yourself in the story. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. Three years you've been following Jesus, you have forsaken everything. Three years you've invested your life in following this man. And then one night, can you imagine the shame Peter must have felt? Like, can you imagine what it must have been like to be Peter and to feel what he must have felt after looking Jesus in the eye and saying, I don't know the man. I don't know him. It would have been understandable for Peter to say, I don't belong anymore. It would have been understandable if Peter had read or heard tell the disciples to say, I'm not one of them anymore. And in the words, and Peter, here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, yeah, it was a fumble, but it was big. It was huge but you're still one of my guys. Hey, Peter, you, you, you might be ashamed of yourself, but you know what, man? I'm not. I'm not ashamed of you, Peter. 
some of us need to let the domino of the resurrection lead us to the words and Peter so that you can hear Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. Yeah, last month was a fumble. I'm not ashamed of you. Yeah, I know about the night in college. I'm not ashamed of you. Yeah, I know why you have a headache right now. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. You see, whether you've been following Jesus for three weeks, three months, three years, or 30 years, here's what Ann Peter says. Ann Peter says that there's not a stumble in your life so significant that Jesus won't call you by name. You see, where the resurrection leads, it leads to grace, grace that the world has never seen before and never seen since, grace that you don't even usually extend to yourself. Grace that in that moment where you go, man, I can't even look myself in the mirror. Jesus steps in and says, I'm not ashamed of you. Yeah, and I'll call you by name. The grace that Jesus has for Peter is the grace that he has for you, but that's not where it ends. Verse 7, I'll keep reading. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Go and tell them. I'm going to meet him in Galilee. Hey, go, go, go tell the guys, go tell the disciples and Peter, I'm going to meet him in Galilee. Why Galilee? Why not? Hey, I've been resurrected. There's going to be a new massive palace to come. We're going to build it. It's going to be awesome. The whole world's going to know. Why, why, why and Galilee? D.A. Carson, brilliant theologian, very influential on uh, my life. So one of the beauties of the uh, Galilee, the resurrected Jesus saying this, he says, and the disciples would see Jesus again in the ordinary, everyday world of Galilee. That while the resurrection was this extraordinary, extraordinary event, he sends people back into the ordinary world of Galilee and he goes and he meets them there. That he doesn't pull them out of the ordinary. He redefines the ordinary. And listen, ordinary is not cool. I, I get that. Um, like nobody goes to college thinking, I'm going to go to college so I can be ordinary. You, you go to college so I can be an Aggie, right? Not, not I'm just kidding. I didn't. Um, no, no, no parent ever sat down to their three-year-old and said, hey, little buddy, you know what you're going to be? Oh, it's going to be awesome. You're going to be so ordinary. Like, no parent ever said that to their child. But in Jesus' resurrection, he says, hey, go back to the ordinary, everyday world of Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. But it's not just the ordinary that gets redefined. If we go back to the beginning of Mark, um, at the beginning of Mark, it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. You know where Jesus preached his first sermon? It should be obvious. Galilee. You know where he called his first disciples? Galilee. Galilee. Jesus' resurrection in his resurrection, he had a global plan, but his global plan began local. There's a book that the staff, or we just finished reading, 
And in the last chapter, there's this paragraph that says, it's by Zach Eswine. God invites us to himself for the sake of a local people in a local place with the long learning of local knowledge in Jesus until he comes. This means that if you are wearing yourselves out trying to be and do more than this, Jesus is calling you to stop all this tramping about and come finally home. The great work to be done is right in front of you with the persons and places that his providence has granted you. You see, some of us, some of us need to need to stop always longing for the next job and the next city and the next you fill in the blank. Some of us need to be willing to be content with our local and our local being ordinary, being willing to put down roots and do the beautiful, long, slow work of being local. But redefined ordinary is not where the book of Mark ends. Mark ends with a short little statement, short little phrase, for they were afraid, for they were afraid. The women speaking to this angel were afraid, but if we broaden out and we look at the disciples' life, afraid is not just something that marked the women, it also marked the disciples. It was a repetitive theme in the life of the disciples until until they met the resurrected son, until they met him, until they saw him, until Luke 24, they reached out, touched his hands. And before the resurrection, they were a cowardly group of men and women. After the resurrection, they were a courageous group willing to die for Christ. Why? They met him. They saw him. Have you? Have you? Have you taken your fears, brought them to the resurrected Christ, and watched him redeem them? Have you taken your deepest, darkest fears and said, I am going to bring them to the one who is resurrected from the grave and watch him redeem them? Because his resurrection has the power to redeem and change any and all fears that we have, even those that are deepest, darkest, sitting at the core of our life and existence. And if I could take my last three minutes and land the plane this way, I want to tell you how, or at least a picture of how. So here's mine. Here, here's my, my deepest fear. You ready? I'm not. Um, here's my deepest fear. Rejection. My parents divorced when I was four, uh, like a lot of kids who... Uh, have uh, divorced families, in particular young, uh, when parents get divorced. My entire life has been lived on an acceptance rejection paradigm. My deepest fear is being rejected. Let me tell you where it gets redeemed. Every week, every week, I get to come to this room. I get to walk down from here, go over to that row, and then I walk to the aisle and I come down to the table. And I take the bread and I dip it in a cup. And I get to experience the acceptance of Christ. You know why? Because that bread and that cup does not represent a dead man. It doesn't represent a dead man. 
It represents his death, but that death did not hold him down. So I get to come to the table and I get to feast and feel and experience and know the acceptance of Christ because that bread and that cup does not represent a dead man. But then, you know what I do? I leave here. And at 11 o'clock, I load my wife, my kids in our minivan. And yes, we have a minivan and we love our minivan. And then we drive home and then we, um, we, we hang there for a couple hours. And then we get back in our minivan and we drive down to 22nd Street and we, we walk into a living room with a group of men, women, and children. We call it a neighborhood parish. And I get to have a meal with them. And you know what I get to experience there? The acceptance of Christ. You know why? You know what? Because just like Jesus said, hey, hey, go, 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 to, go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. He said, hey, come, come to my table. Come to my table. I'll meet you there. And he said, hey, you know what? Go, go to my people. Go take your fears. Go to my people. You know why? Among them, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. To my table, to my people, bring your deepest fears. Because at my table, among my people, I'll meet you there. Because I'm not dead. The grave didn't hold me down. That bread, that cup, doesn't represent a dead man. When y'all gather in my name, you're not gathering in the name of a man who is dead. So where does the domino of the resurrection lead us? It leads us to grace that the world has never seen before. It leads us to the ordinary and local being beautiful. And it leads us to a place where our feel, or not feels, our fears aren't just welcomed. They get redeemed. Because week in, week out, we get to come and be met by him here. Let me pray. Father, thank you that uh, first that you would send your son into the world to stand in the gap for us. That he would go to a cross and die in our place. And thank you that you didn't leave him in the grave, but that we have a resurrected son who is alive that we worship. I pray that we would know, that all of us in this room would know the depth and the beauty of what it's like to be met by Christ and to know the acceptance of Christ at his table and among his people. And for those still wrestling uh, with, uh, is this a domino that I want to push down, would you, would you let them know that they, they don't, and you don't think they have to check their mind at the door to push that domino over? Would you capture our hearts? Would you center all of our hearts around the resurrected Son? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.